This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And I want to give a special thank you to James Gunther, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 383 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Kat Rosenfield. She's the author of the young adult novels Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone and Inland. And she's also covered controversies in YA publishing in her Vulture articles, the toxic drama on YA Twitter, and the latest YA Twitter pile-on forces a rising star to self-cancel. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new novel, Trick of Light, which she wrote together with Luke Lieberman, Ryan Silbert, and Stan Lee, the legendary Marvel Comics editor who co-created such iconic superheroes as Spider-Man, The Avengers, and The X-Men. And now here's her interview with Kat Rosenfield. All right, so we're here with Kat Rosenfield. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you said in an interview that you grew up in cow country. So tell us about that. Cow country. Um, I'm from Cooksaukee, New York, which is uh, spelled in a way that makes people think it's pronounced in a way other than what it is. I'm not going to say it out loud because it's kind of gross. Um, but yeah, I'm from a really small town, uh, lots of cows and prisons, and that's pretty much all we've got. Um, bucolic, you know, but it was uh, it was a very rural upbringing. So did that influence you in your imaginative, creative life? For sure. Um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of playing by myself outside, um, you know, in the woods, imagining, oh, you know, creatures living there or whatever. Um, and then my, my first novel, actually, um, I drew upon not so much the landscape, but what it's like to grow up in a really small insular community where people have known each other a long time, have been related to each other for a long time. Um, to kind of capture that dynamic um, in this murder mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. But so I also heard you say that you weren't allowed to watch any TV growing up. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit more complicated than that. I wasn't allowed to watch anything that my parents felt was unintellectual. And the way they defined that was really kind of slippery. I'm, sh I'm not entirely sure how they kind of made up their rules. I now suspect actually that they were just limiting me to watching things that they themselves were interested in watching. <laughs> so I was allowed to watch um, the X-Files, you know, but not um, any sitcoms. I've never seen a single episode of Friends, which I think makes me very weird for a, a person my age. So even when you're a, a young kid, you had to watch intellect, like what kind of intellectual stuff is there for Oh gosh. I mean, we, I mean, I watched a lot of the electric company, um, in Sesame Street when I was a, a little kid. Um, and then the, the show that I remember being on most, um, when I was a little bit older was Masterpiece Mystery, um, which I remember mostly because it had this Edward Gorey animated, um, opening sequence with a woman on a gravestone kind of crying in the rain. Um, so that was definitely on in my house. And I mean, when I was a, a kid, um, there were a couple of things like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for some reason, kind of fit the bill. They, they passed, they passed the test. I was allowed to watch that show. Um, I was allowed to watch Ren and Stimpy because my dad was a huge fan of it. So yeah, a little, a little esoteric. Were your parents intellectuals or professors or journalists or something? Uh, my dad's a doctor, and my mom was a housewife with a master's in public health that she didn't end up using. So I would say they were, you know, intellectual people, but not necessarily in, I mean, neither one of them were in, um, you know, professorial roles. Mm. But they encouraged you to read a lot, or I guess, you know, because there were so few TV shows you could watch, you, you read a lot? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved to read and I was encouraged um, to read anything I wanted. No limits on that. If it was in print, I was allowed, um, which is how I ended up coming into contact with some pretty inappropriate stuff as I was, you know, around the ages of like 
10 to 12. Um, the story that I always tell is that I, I was casting about for something new to read because I had consumed everything available to me that was age appropriate. And my mom pulled the shining off of our <laughs> bookshelf and handed it to me. It was like, here, do this. Um, I was 11. <laughs> and, uh, that book messed me up. <laughs> it was like afraid of our bathtub for the next, eight to ten years. <laughs> so was, was it any of the stuff that you were reading fantasy or science fiction related? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I feel like I read everything. Um, you know, growing up, I, I loved The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I loved The Hobbit. Um, and then I also really got a kick out of um, kind of these... Oh, I'm trying to think of how to describe them. They sort of overwrought young adult novels um, that always featured teenagers dying of some kind of horrible disease or cancer or a heart defect. Um, they were by this woman named Lurleen McDaniel. And they were just like soap operas about dying adolescence. So I was really into those too. Mm. And so when did you start thinking that you might want to write your own fiction? It took me a while, actually, to come around to the idea of writing a book myself. I had sort of dabbled in like writing short stories when I was growing up um, because we would be assigned them in school. And I always liked doing it, but I sort of got away from the idea of writing as something that I would do, you know, for fun, let alone for profit, um, until I was out in the working world in my mid-20s and realized that I was very bored. So I started blogging at that point and sort of rediscovered that writing was something I really enjoyed and came easily to me. And that was when I started thinking that I might be interested in writing a book. So what sort of blogging were you doing? Um, it was sort of the golden age of blogging. This would have been like circa 2004, 2005, when everyone just had a personal blog that was like, I mean, it could be anything. It could be like a diary slash political commentary slash, you know, here's something funny I saw on the street and I want to talk about it. Um, I wrote a lot of things that I guess would now sort of maybe fit into, they were sort of somewhere between personal essays and and tweets in terms of the tone. Um, I was really trying to mimic the sort of Sloan Crosley style of personal essay writing where it was funny and intimate and, you know, you felt like you knew the person, but you were also entertained. You felt like their life was interesting. That was my entry point. So did you start getting paid first for nonfiction or for fiction? Um, let's see. I started, uh, I sort of fell into blogging for a few different sites, once I decided I wanted to start pursuing writing as a career, I started applying for things on Media Bistro Freelance. And I ended up as a writer for this site called Sparknotes, um, which had a, a designated blog. Those are like the study guides that, you know, I guess are sort of the current generation's version of Cliff's Notes. Um, but they had a lifestyle blog where um, there was, you would write about high school related topics, um, usually from a humorous standpoint. So I started doing that. And I also stumbled into a gig writing for one of MTV's blog verticals called Hollywood Crush. Um, long since defunct, it was the Young Hollywood Gossip blog. So I was sort of situated in this like youth culture-centric, digital, um, gossipy Hollywood entertainment space. And after I'd been doing that for a while, I ended up segueing into a reporting position at MTV News. When the blogs folded, um, they brought me over to the main news site. And that was when I really started working in journalism, started getting paid to write. And uh, about the same time, I sold my first novel. So I was sort of trying a lot of different things, throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what would stick. And what was the process like of selling that first novel? Uh, I did it a little backwards. I had worked in publishing um, when I first got out of college. And my husband, uh, who I met at work, still worked in publishing at the time that I'd finished this book. So he took the manuscript from me without 
me knowing um, that he was doing this, he took it and he showed it to an editor who liked it and decided that she wanted to um, buy it. So I ended up having a book deal before I had an agent uh, or anything like that. So the process was um, overall kind of sneaky and surprising, but ultimately was a good thing. And it was published as YA, right? The first novel? Yeah, yeah. That was something that I sort of fell into. Um, at the time, it was, and it still is a sort of a wide open category. What qualifies a book as YA is not the most scientific um, process to determine it. It's basically at the time it was if the, the main character was a teenager who was still in high school or recently in high school, then it was a YA book. And so that was where I ended up. Uh, so, so you you just wrote it, and you didn't you had no you hadn't given any thoughts of how it would be marketed or anything. No, no, I was you know I was just trying something. Um, I wasn't even sure that it, it was such a weird sort of dark story. I mean, despite having a teenage protagonist, it's quite adult in a lot of ways and deals with um, you know complicated subject matter. So I wasn't really sure that anybody was going to want to publish it. Were you friends with any other writers or involved in any online communities for writers or things like that? Online communities, no, not really. I mean, I, I got to know other writers as a freelancer for these different websites. But you didn't, you, you, you didn't know any other like novelists at that time? Mm, no, not really. I mean, I'd worked, I'd worked with a few when I was still a book publicist, but no, I, it, was, it was not really part of my... Certainly not part of my social life at that point. So then, what was it like having the book come out? It's exciting. <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was a while ago at this point. I mean, that was 2012, so you know, seven years. Um, and I mean, publishing a book, it's like you know, it's very exciting when you first get the deal, and then you get to see your cover, and there's all this stuff that happens ramping up to the actual release. Um, and then it comes out, and sometimes that's actually the most anticlimactic part. Um, because it's just, you know, it's already existed in your mind and in your heart and even in the form of a bound book, you know, for at least a couple of months before it actually hits shelves. So that's sort of the last part of the process to happen. And you said it was sort of about your hometown in a way or? I was based on the setting was based on my hometown. I plugged in a couple of little pieces of um, sort of local lore um, and I inadvertently named a character after um, somebody who used to bully me in high school because I used it as a placeholder and then forgot to change it before publication. Um, so that was a mistake, but he, he's in there. Did anybody ever comment on that? Or? No, I don't. I certainly don't think he read that book or any book. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I was safe there. Although now, now, now that I'm talking about it on a podcast with a lot of listeners, you know, who knows? I'm You're assuming I'm we have a trouble. lot of listeners. I don't know. I kind of got the impression that this was uh, <laughs> this was a big deal. You seemed like kind of a big deal. Oh well, no, I hope so. Um, but so nobody from your town was like, "Oh, come on, our town's not really that dark" or anything like that. Oh no, no, nothing like that. Um, you know, I don't think that anybody. And I'm glad of this. I don't think anybody took it particularly personally. You know, it was it was clearly that I sort of started there and then spun out into something that was imaginary. So the people who read the book, who knew that I had sort of started with Kuksaki, um, I think were mostly just entertained by the idea of the town having that kind of role um, in somebody's creative life and that somebody from the town would have a creative life. Um, there's not a whole lot of writers coming out of um, coming out of where I'm from. So, hmm. But so that went well enough that you're like, oh, that was fun. Let me do it again. Um, I mean, I, I kind of felt at that point like there was not a whole lot else to do. I continued to, to freelance, but writing is really the only thing that I'm particularly good at. So... That was where I decided to, you know, the basket I decided to put my eggs in, I guess. And then what was the second novel? Uh, that was called Inland, and it was a sort of a psychological thriller uh, about a young woman with a mysterious and possibly insidious connection to the sea. Is that a fantasy novel in any way? Or is that a spoiler? 
It, I mean, I guess it's got fantastic elements. It's it's got an open ending um, that I you know that I wouldn't want to spoil if anybody you know five years after publication still wants to read it. Um, but you know, it had it had fantastic elements. Um, that book was. Um, I started thinking about it at the time that Twilight had become a really big deal, and everyone was trying to figure out what the next big thing was going to be, and. Um, in all the sort of YA musings on future trends, somebody said, well, since we've already done vampires and we've done werewolves, the next big thing is going to be mermaids. And I thought, well, that's dumb. I don't want to yeah. write a mermaid book. You know, that's ridiculous. And then I started thinking, well, like, if I had to write a mermaid book, if someone put a gun to my head and said, write a mermaid book right now, what would it be? Um, and from there, I started noodling on this idea um, of, of sort of a, a darker twist on oh, you know, different mermaid lore, and specifically um, Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. And I came up with something that was interesting enough to me that I decided to write it after all. So I kind of uh, you know, owned myself there, I guess. <laughs> And so, so you were at some level kind of connected to the YA worlds or aware of what was going on or, or just peripherally or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, once, um, once you've published in YA and especially at that point, um, you know, it was a big thing to make sure that you were on Twitter, make sure you were accessible to your fans. Um, you know, YA readers hang out online, um, and, you know, they're, they're a passionate bunch. You know, they make fan art, they make playlists. Um, and so if you're there in those spaces, you can connect with them. Um, but, that was certainly a space that I was hanging out in and observing trends in um, starting around the time that my first book was published. So did it seem like fun at the time or were there any like harbingers of doom even back then? <laughs> I, think I, know, I think I know what you're getting at. Um, so, I mean, I think that initially it was, it was fun. And it's, it's funny, I've gone back um, from time to time and looked at some of the old conversations that were happening in that space. Um, and it was just, the mood was different. Um, you know, on, in 2012, 2013, it was all like book giveaways and people sharing gift sets and art and just, you know, talking about craft and doing fun Q and A's. Um, so at the start, I think maybe this is, this is true of Twitter at large, um, not just in the YA space. It was just a, a sort of a more positive and a more freewheeling community. Um, then things started to shift, um, in a way that I think, has, again, has been observable kind of across the board on Twitter. Um, you know, certain dynamics emerge as dominant, um, that are maybe a little more toxic. Um, particularly in spaces where there's also a really dominant kind of a political bent, which did become true in the YA space. Right. And so I want to come back to that. But before we get to that, let's talk about your, your sort of third book that was a collaborative novel, Trick of Light. So what was sort of the first inkling you had that Trick of Light was going to be a thing? Oh, gosh, it was actually a huge surprise. Um, so A Trick of Light, I should um, back this up to the point um, before I came on board, started with Luke Lieberman and Stan Lee. Um, Stan had been a mentor to Luke since uh, Luke's years as a, a film student at NYU. And they had always wanted to collaborate together on something. You know, they weren't sure what. And um, maybe... Uh, you know, when, so when first, uh, when Luke and Stan first met, they had talked about the internet and Stan felt like the internet held a lot of promise and it, it was, you know, this incredible tool that was going to globalize us and connect communities and make all kinds of exciting collaboration and communication possible. Um, and fast forward about 10 years when they returned to the idea of collaborating. And Stan felt that the internet had not necessarily lived up to its promise. Uh, instead of connecting people, it was having the effect of tribalizing them. Um, you know, people, even though they could get online and talk to someone anywhere in the world, a lot of us felt more isolated and more alone than ever. So kind of stemming from this question of, of um, 
you know, what the internet was doing to human beings, to our connections with each other, to even our sense of reality and identity. Um, the two of them started world building. Uh, they brought on Ryan Silber, a filmmaker, um, to collaborate on that process. And then eventually, once they had this premise in place, it was decided that it was going to be an audible original to begin with. You're going to do this in audio, for audio specifically. Um, and that was when I came on board. And at the time, all I knew about the project was that it was this really, really cool thing that my agent had been involved with. Um, we, we all share an agent and she said that she wanted to put me up for it. And I was convinced that I was not geeky enough by far. Um, you know, a terrible, terrible case of imposter syndrome as I was having conversations, you know, exploring the possibility of becoming a contributor or collaborator on this project. So nobody was more surprised than me when it turned out to be an amazing fit. Um, but luckily they decided they wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction to, um, to get somebody from more of a literary fiction background because, um, I think the, the guys felt like they already were representing the, <laughs> the truly hardcore nerdy side. So it was cool to diversify things a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think that the fact that it's a, a, it's a book about teenage characters and the fact, I think you had done a teen advice column. Do you think that that played any role in them, um, selecting you? Um, I mean, I think, you know, what, what I understand is that they were looking for somebody who could really tap into who these characters were and what their relationships were like with each other. Stan was really intent on, I mean, and always had been, but I think especially in this project, was intent that this was a character-driven story, that it was important that these characters be fully realized on the page, that the readers relate to them. And, I mean... 10 years as a teenage advice columnist, I definitely did have an insight or two into kind of the workings of the teenage brain. So I'm sure that that helped. I heard you say in a podcast, too, that uh, women oftentimes won't really aggressively pursue these sorts of opportunities and that you really went for it. Is there anything more to say about about that? Um, gosh, I mean, it's, you know, that that whole question of imposter syndrome, I think that does affect women maybe more often than men, or maybe we're just told that it does and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but I think that um, the the thing that I was sort of getting at in the podcast that you're talking about was the idea that women are always apologizing for taking up space. Um, you know, and it's not just about getting a project, but then about aggressively promoting it or thinking that you have the right to, you know, to be in this space telling this story, you know, instead of somebody else. Um, that I, I think that women struggle with that. And um, unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of people out there who are aware of that and who kind of prey upon it to tell women that they shouldn't be taking up space. Um, and even sometimes it's other women doing it. So, in terms of that, you know, being, having that confidence, you know, to just, to just be a working writer and to feel like you deserve to be there. Um, you know, I don't know if I would say that, that that was key to me getting this work, but at the same time, there was a point where I thought to myself, like, if you weren't right for this opportunity, it wouldn't be presenting itself in this way. Um, I thought, you know, yes, it's new, but I can do this. Um, and so there was definitely a point where I sort of psyched myself up, you know, to, to not worry about any doubts related to my ability to tackle this kind of new subject matter and a new kind of writing process because it was my first time collaborating with somebody on a book. Um, and to, to just say, yeah, you know, I want this. It's cool. I want to do this and I'm going to do this. And the process was basically that the four of you kind of outlined the book together and then you wrote the actual text. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, Stan was really heavily involved, um, all the way through. We were lucky to complete this project while he was still with us. So the story was a collaborative effort um, and we did come up with the most detailed 
outline that I have ever seen for anything that I've ever worked on. I mean, just like beat by beat, line by line, um, you know, how people were relating to each other, what they were saying to each other, what was happening in a scene. So um, in that sense, you know, even though I was technically the, you know, I'm, I'm the one whose name is on the cover along with Stan, um, it really was storytelling as a team sport. Mm. What was it like meeting Stan Lee for the first time? Were you really nervous or excited? Oh, or? God. I mean, you know, it's impossible to to be in a creative space with Stan, to be collaborating with him and not to be nervous, but also excited, you know, I mean, and, and so excited because he's excited. You know, he had the most unbelievable creative enthusiasm. Um, and he was an incredibly spontaneously creative person. He was, you know, having ideas in you know, well into his 90s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically there's there's certainly this moment where you're just having like a fangirl freak out. Um, and then you realize that Stan himself is a super fan of so many things. And that's sort of what makes him such a great collaborator and such a fun storyteller. Are there any particular um, moments or conversations or, or anything that, that stick out in your mind? Um, actually, the, the thing that I kind of keep coming back to, and this is something that happened after he passed away, um, was that there was always this dichotomy between, you know, working with Stan, the, the human being, you know, the storyteller, and Stan, the larger than life icon who, you know, you'd go to a movie theater and he, he would be there on screen, hmm. like in, you know, enormous. It was like working with the Wizard of Oz. Um, and, you know, sometimes you'd get the glimpse behind the curtain and then sometimes there would be this big floating head. <laughs> and, um, so, um, the day that he passed away, I was feeling just unbelievably sad about it because, you know, having, having worked on this story, you know, everyone was so excited to, to have him with us when it came into the world. We really wanted him here, you know, to, to be part of the release, you know, to put the book in his hands, say, look what we made. Um, so I was feeling really down and, my husband suggested that we watch a Marvel movie together because it would cheer me up and, you know, it would be a nice way to honor Stan. And I said, okay. Um, we decided on Guardians of the Galaxy 2 because that's a fun one and I didn't want to be, you know, kind of like weeping my way through this. And so we're watching it and it, you know, definitely a super fun movie, but I had forgotten that Stan had this mid-credits scene where he's alone in a spacesuit on this barren planet and um, these gentlemen who were supposed to give him a ride home are all leaving him behind because he's, you know, been talking obnoxiously and they're tired of it. And as they're leaving him, he says, you know, in that voice, like, oh, geez, guys, come back. I got so many more stories to tell. And I was just like ugly crying, you know, not prepared because... He really, you know, he did, he did have so many stories to tell. Um, and the thing that really I think was brought home to me in that moment was that I and, um, Luke and Ryan and, and really all of the creators who became a part of his stories, particularly the ones that were being brought to life in his, you know, her, his last years, um, we all have this privilege, but also this responsibility to make sure they keep going because there are still all of these stories. There's so much work that hasn't seen the light of day yet. Um, and it's, you know, we have now the responsibility to bring it forward and carry on and, you know, keep it going. So you said that you sort of had this imposter syndrome around not feeling like you were enough of a sci-fi fan or comic book geek or anything. Do you feel like having worked on this book that you've gotten drawn into that world's a lot more? Well, I, I experienced my first and second Comic Cons within the past year. So, um, you know, talk about your trial by fire. I think that I am, I am far geekier now than I was at the start of uh, 2019, for sure. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a world that I really, you know, I was aware of, but had never spent time in. And it's been incredibly exciting and cool um, to see the just the amount of energy there is amazing. 
Well, did they put you on panels at Comic-Con? Yeah, yeah. We uh, we all did a panel together. Um, we we did one in San Diego with Yara Shahidi, who was the wonderful reader for the Audible original. And then um, in New York, uh, it was the three of us, you know, to, to talk about the print edition and, you know, what was new and different and exciting about that coming forward. Mm-hmm. So what sort of were people in the audience asking you questions and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in New York, it was interesting. The the questions were very centered on people who were storytellers themselves and wanted to kind of find out about what our process was like and, you know, asking questions about craft. Um, and I think somebody asked, what's the weirdest thing in Stan Lee's house or the coolest thing in Stan Lee's house? Which, you know, the, obvi- the obvious answer was Stan. Stan is the coolest <laughs> thing in Stan Lee's house. Um, in, well, in what's San the Diego. second weirdest thing in Stan Lee's house? <laughs> oh, God. I, I don't know. I don't think I, that I could. I actually don't know that I really have any idea what Stan Lee's house looks like. Like, what, what could you describe? No, I, I haven't. I haven't been there. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so, um, and then in San Diego, we had, um, you know, because we had a literal celebrity with us, um, you know, lots and lots of questions for Yara about, oh, you know, whose computer she would want to hack with her brain if she could. Um, and so, you know, that was fun, kind of engaging more with the substance of a trick of light, which is, you know, it's a, a fun yarn. So it was great to talk about that. Yeah, I don't know how much you want to say about the what the sort of giveaway about the plot of the book, but but the basic premise is that there's a, a teenage character who develops a superpower that involves the internet. I don't know. If, is there more you want to say about? Yeah, you know, I think that we can. You know, it's at, at this point. Um, you know, I can comfortably say that Cameron, uh, one of our two protagonists, uh, suffers an accident that endows him with cybernetic abilities. He can communicate with software with his mind. And he makes a connection with a young woman named Nia, who also has um, incredible gifts. She's a gifted hacker, also has a mysterious past. And together, their connection is something really powerful. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of log line is they could save the world together or they could destroy it. And they meet while playing video games, which just made me curious if you're a, a gamer yourself. I'm not. Um, I spent a lot of time watching people on YouTube playing <laughs> Fortnite, um, playing Call of Duty to, you know, just lots and lots and lots of these, um, you know, people, people who, who video their own gameplay. And I was so grateful to them. It's a really interesting world that I had never experienced before. Mm-hmm. And how about in, there's a, um, a biohacking convention that features prominently in the book is that is that a real thing like biohacking conventions and did you ever go to anything like that biohacking is a real thing um i did not attend any conventions i would have loved to if there was one available in the in the time frame within which i was writing this but um it didn't end up working out um but you know it was a fun thing to find out what is already possible which is a lot and then to imagine what could become possible in the near future with a little bit more technology. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, biohacks that you might be interested in yourself? I think about this all the time. Um, and I don't know. I, I actually, when I think about things like, um, like you could get an implant, you know, that would allow you to scan yourself through airport security or to pay for your coffee in the morning without having to take out a wallet or, or all of this stuff. And I am so torn between the convenience of that because I'm always forgetting stuff at home and it would make my life a lot easier. But like, do I want that inside my body? Um, there, it's, it's such a, a conundrum. And I think, you know, it's something that we're already kind of reckoning with um, in terms of like how much of your data do you want to give to Google or to Apple? Um, do you want to give them your fingerprint? Do you want to give them your face to, you know, to, to um, bring into their kind of biometric unlocking mechanism? Like, do you want to give your DNA to, um, you know, a company that can tell you where you come from, but might also later catch you doing a murder or somebody related to you doing a murder. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think that there are 
questions there that I find interesting and concerning that I have not yet figured out the answers to. And so you said one of the themes of the book is sort of that the internet was supposed to bring us together, but it's ended up kind of making us more angry and isolated. And you said that was sort of the premise from the beginning, but I feel like you have a lot of experience with that. Did you um, did you come in and say, like, guys, the internet's actually way worse than you think? Or did they fully comprehend how bad it was even before you got involved? Oh, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the impact of social media, particularly on the way that we interact with each other is something that's so much part of everybody's contemporary anxieties at this point. You know, everyone who has to live and work on the internet has experienced this to some degree. Even just the kind of casual dehumanization that happens when you're, when you're interacting with somebody with a screen as an intermediary, so much gets lost. So, um, in terms of, you know, convincing my collaborators that the internet has this dark side, that wasn't a difficult thing to do. The thing that they, they didn't initially believe, um, was some of the conspiracy theories that proliferate in dark, but not that dark corners of the internet. Um, we were trying to come up with some sort of imaginary conspiracy theories for somebody to be involved with. And I, I provided a few examples and they said, these are too out there. It's too ridiculous. And, um, I said, Oh no, no. And I, I think I sent them the clip of, um, of Alex Jones yelling about how chemicals are turning all of the frogs gay. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that was, uh, that was a little educational moment. <laughs> well, right. So let's come back then to the, the YA Twitter stuff. So you wrote this article on Vulture called the toxic drama on YA Twitter. Um, and I don't want to re rehash all the details of it. I, like people can go read that article if they, you know, if they're interested. But I, I'm just curious about what your personal experience with all this stuff has been. So, like, how did you, um, like, what was the process of deciding to write about that that topic? So, um, as we had talked about before, I was already in that space, and I think that the phenomenon that I was observing there is actually something that's been happening in a lot of left wing spaces. Um, but because YA was sort of where I had my window, I did start to notice around um, 2015, 2016, that the conversation um, in YA had shifted in this interesting um, and sometimes sort of troubling way when it came to how we were tackling issues of free expression. Um, and it culminated, I think this was towards the end of 2016, with a, a book that was still in the ARC stage, so it had not been read by very many people, um, was denounced by one influential blogger um, and, and also YA author on Twitter. And it turned into this just dumpster fire of people, you know, frantically kind of um, wanting to signal that they, you know, that they were right thinking about this. Um, the novel was accused of being racist. And again, this was something that it was, it was difficult to know how much validity there were to these claims because um, the novel was not widely available. Only a handful of people had read it. So you had people, you know, sight unseen going on Goodreads to vote down this book, you know, give it one star, um, to try to, you know, torpedo the buzz for it. Um, and the thing that really was strange to me was that a petition started circulating amongst a writer's group on Facebook where people were saying, let's, you know, let's petition Harper Collins to pull this book for edits, to force edits upon this other writer. Um, and it was even in the language of, of this discussion, it was what we really want is for this book to be canceled, but saying that we want it pulled for edits will play better. So, um, I made what I now realize was the incredibly stupid mistake of, you know, registering my alarm that this was happening in a creative space, you know, that, that we had 
people trying to campaign to censor the work of a fellow writer. I thought that was shocking. This is, you, um, you tweeted something? I tweeted something. Um, I, I mean, I didn't tag anybody or hashtag it. I just, um, you know, I, I guess you know, I subtweeted about it. Um, I said, you know, like, it's, it's, you know, crazy to see people arguing for what's essentially book banning in the name of social justice. And um, a horde of very angry people descended um, into my notifications and called me all kinds of names. And my first thought after I got over just the kind of horror, you know, what was happening was, God, this is interesting. Something interesting is happening here. So that was where I started paying a lot closer attention to this particular dynamic. And I discovered that it was happening everywhere, and it was having a real impact on people who were trying to still work in this space, and on young readers themselves who were being shamed and intimidated out of even saying they wanted to read a book once it had been deemed controversial or problematic. Um, you had adults, you know, adult authors going after them, telling them that they were basically Nazis for wanting to make up their own minds about something that they'd been told was bad. Did you have any sense at this point that this might affect your career, um, getting into this controversy? Um, I, I didn't. And I had um, somebody, um, uh, one of the, one of the sort of most influential parties in the YA space um, started a really professionally damaging rumor about me that was completely false in retaliation, I assume, for having just, you know, said anything about this issue at all. And, um, you know, I honestly, I, I was shocked at the time. And it's, and it's still kind of surprising to me that, um, you know, adults who have families and hold down jobs and, you know, are just like normal functioning people, um, behave this way, behave so vindictively, um, and, and kind of with such malicious glee when it comes to identifying a target who they want to destroy by any means necessary. So, um, after that happened, I definitely did have a sense that writing about this would be potentially, um, you know, it, it, it would make me like, a, I don't know, an enfant terrible as far as the, the YA community was concerned, or I'd be a bug to them. But um, I also felt like I didn't have a whole lot to lose at that point. Right. And so you wrote this article on Vulture. And one thing that really struck me is you said that no, none of your um, nobody that you quoted in the article was willing to go on the record um, because they are all so afraid of on both sides afraid yeah. of the um, blowback. Yeah, one person, um, Francina Simone, bless her, you know, very brave. Um, and she has her own book coming out this year. So, you know, she survived speaking out about this unscathed. Um, but everybody else was terrified. And that was the thing that was sort of most identifiable. It was the fear um, that people, you know, felt like there was no room to speak up. There was no room to misstep. Um you know, or, or even to just, you know, dissent in an ethical way, um, that people were completely petrified of being the next target. And even the, um, this young woman who really, um, was on the side of the people who wanted to kind of take these books off shelves and, you know, and, or fourth edits on their authors, um, she felt that she couldn't use her name talking to me because her friends would see it as a huge, you know, betrayal that she'd even, you know, engage with me at all. Right. I mean, I'm only very peripherally involved with YA fantasy and science fiction, but just looking at it from the outside, it just seems so dysfunctional. And, you know, I, I just recently moved from New York City. So I, I, you know, socialized with a lot of writers and editors and agents and stuff. And um, there was a conversation I had, I don't know, a couple of months ago where a writer said, uh, I'm almost afraid to get a good idea for a YA book because I don't know if I want to write it. And the agent said flatly, just don't write YA. It's just not even worth it. And and that really struck me a bit, you know. Wow, yeah. really, really wrong here. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny that um, is the kind of thing that I've heard myself. Um, and, you know, I don't know why it is that YA ends up being ground zero for so much of this stuff, except that maybe the fact that there's a this young readership has always made it a little bit of a magnet for controversy. But yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting to hear. Mm -hmm. I've also, I sort of have the vague sense that, that the YA boom is sort of cooled down and the books aren't selling the way that they used to. And I don't know, assuming that's true. I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but I can't help but wondering if the, if all the nastiness online is, is just turning away a lot of people, both, both writers and readers. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's evidence that the category itself is contracting that, you know, people are not reading as much of it as they used to. Um, and I think that actual teenagers are less interested in a lot of the books that are driving the conversations in YA. What you have is, is a, a situation where half of the readers of YA, at least, are actually adults, and not necessarily young adults, um, who are kind of coming into this space and imposing their tastes or their particular anxieties on the conversation overall in a way that I think, honestly, really annoys um, actual teenagers, you know, who just don't want any part of all of this drama. So the category itself has has changed, you know, trying to accommodate the demands of this very vocal group of not necessarily young adult readers who still read YA. And I mean, I don't know if maybe that has something to do with why the category has changed so much, why what's available has changed so much. I mean, it's certainly been a long time since we had a Twilight or a Hunger Games, um, which were, you know, the the books that really exploded the category to begin with. What what is what would you say is your current relationship to YA? Like, do you um, are you not involved with it anymore, or do you think you might write anymore? Why? <laughs> yeah, it's like picture somebody very slowly and gingerly backing away from a mire of like sticky black mud full of screaming people who are all flinging the mud at each other. <laughs> that might that might about sum up my relationship with YA. I mean, I. I did for a long time because I was writing about it. Um, I, I kind of hovered near the fringes of these conversations and was was fascinated often by how incredibly toxic it was. But there's a point at which watching this stuff happen and watching it play out over and over and never get any better becomes a little bit discouraging. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll say too, I mean, my, my sense of it is, is that YA is the most dysfunctional, but um, a lot of the same problems exist in adult fantasy and science fiction. And I've talked to any number of writers who are, I mean, you know, top rank, award-winning, amazingly talented writers who said, you know, that they're taking the same approach that you are of just sort of quietly withdrawing because, because of all the toxicity and, and they just sort of avoid conventions and avoid other writers and stuff because because of all the online bullying and everything. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And I think it's unfortunate because the the people who actually enjoy living this way, I think are such a tiny minority. They just happen to be really loud and really scary. Um, and, you know, people would prefer to avoid them than, you know, get covered in mud themselves. So... It's not it's not a surprise that people are just kind of disengaging and and going to have these discussions somewhere else, but I think it's a shame. Yeah. I mean, one thing I heard you say that I I thought was really interesting was that um you know, you're talking about um Lori Forrest, the author of The Black Witch, and you said that um that she was never really that she never really had an enormous number of personal or professional connections to to people who were sort of involved in all these online controversies. And so she could just kind of ignore it and, and, and sort of weather the storm and not get involved. And then it didn't really seem to have affected her book sales in the end that much. Um, whereas these the people like um, Amelie Wen Zhao and um, you mentioned Kosoko Jackson mm -hmm. um, were much more involved in these spaces. And so, you know, they, they stood to lose a lot of friends and a lot of uh, professional contacts and things um, if this community turned against them. And, you know, it almost makes it 
sound like, um, you know, just as from a, um, you know, from a standpoint of self-preservation or uh, like game theory or something that the, 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 the fewer contacts you have with the people who are calling people out, the less power that, or the less sort of the, the, the less danger you're in, um, you know, going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've never solicited the respect um, or, you know, the support of that side of the community, then it is probably no skin off your ass, or at least less skin um, to be denounced by them. And even Lori Forrest, like I have to say, you know, she did what I think is the only thing you can do um, in a situation like this where she simply didn't respond. You know, she continued to engage with people who were interested in her book. She let this conversation just happen, you know, without without responding, um, you know, without dignifying the vitriol. And even then, you know, so she released her book and it did do well, but it took two years for, for instance, her Goodreads reading to rebound um, from the absolute just like lashing that it took um, from people who hadn't read it, who were just, you know, one starring everything that she'd ever written because they wanted to hurt her career. So it's hard to say, you know, you never know what, you know, what would have happened if not for this, you know, would her book have been more, even more successful? You know, would she have been even more okay than she was? Um, and it's, you know, I think it, it could really torment you as a writer to start wondering what kind of opportunities you lost, um, you know, because somebody decided to try to damage you in this way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely true that there's this sort of live by the sword, die by the sword element. Like once you decide to involve yourself in that aspect of the community, particularly in the calling out and the sniping and the backbiting and getting into Twitter spats about social justice, um, if somebody decides to come after you, it's, I think, much, much harder to just not respond or to disengage from that. Mm -hmm. You know, I listened to your interview with Anna Marie Cox and, um, you know, her position was sort of, you know, that, um, you know, diversity in publishing is an issue, which is definitely true. And that maybe this is just a necessary, like, overcorrection or, you know, like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a period that we have to pass through in order to achieve a greater good. And um, I mean, that may be true. I, I suspect, actually, this stuff is really counterproductive. Um but I guess it could go either way. But I thought that she was really minimizing how traumatic it is for authors to have hundreds of people saying you're an awful person on social media. I mean, I think maybe if you're a professional journalist, that's just kind of like, yeah, that's a typical day on Twitter. But I think that for authors who tend to be very sensitive and, you know, insecure and imposter syndrome and all this kind of stuff, uh, I think you really can't underestimate how, how awful this is for people. Yeah, I don't think you even have to be particularly insecure to, you know, to, to be traumatized by that. I mean, it, it is a traumatic thing to have, you know, a hundred people yelling at you that you're evil, that you're a bigot, that you're a racist, that you're hurting children. Um, and the, the funny thing about that is that, you know, if you, if you say like, you know, that you're upset by it, um, people are like, why are you taking this so personally? It's just criticism. All we're saying is that you're literally killing children. Like, why are you getting so upset? Um, but, you know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, the Anna Marie Cox interview, which I actually recently re-listened to. Um, and I realized it was, it was one of the first times that I'd had a discussion with anybody on any podcast, um, period, but also talked um, with anybody about that article in a public way. And I was really freaked out and worried that I was going to put my foot in my mouth. And so I didn't push back against a lot of the stuff she said that I thought was actually really flat out wrong, or like you said, minimizing, um, you know, to say that, you know, like, it doesn't matter because, because maybe the book is 
you know, maybe the book just isn't that good anyway, so who cares? Um, I think it just opens such a dangerous door. And it's, and it's weaselly in a way to start from this place of, well, we want to, we want to force edits on this book. We want you to censor your work because it's harmful. It's morally reprehensible. And then to pivot to, and it's not even that good. You know, it's just, um, I, I think that that's something that happens a lot in these conversations that I wish people would stop doing. Well, right. And, and there's this been this sort of justification of like, oh, no, but we, um, you know, we made these criticisms and the author says, oh, thank you, thank you, and they're going to change the book now, and that's great. And I sort of have to wonder, like, well, if you had reached out to the author privately and said, you know, you can, it's your book, you can do what you want, but here's my perspective on it, you know, like, what are the odds that the author would pull the book right before publication and, and change? You know, it, it just seems, it's very hard for me to believe that that would ever happen. Oh, it's um, ludicrous. It's, I mean, it's so silly. It's so like, you know, he loves Big Brother now. You know, of course, you know, you you say that and... um I feel like people often in these conversations make references to um, like struggle sessions in China, which is obviously a pretty extreme thing to make a comparison to. But the idea that you are so grateful to the person who has savaged you, you know, who's savaged your work, who's, you know, and who's made it clear that they're going to impose serious reputational damage on you if you don't kowtow to their wishes. Um, the fact that so many people are willing to kind of take that at face value, of course, they're truly grateful. Um, I think that is really kind of, you know, disingenuous. Yeah, yeah. So that was just kind of my my reaction to the to the Anna Marie Cox interview was that, you know, that the ends don't justify the means and like bullying and harassment just as tactics. Uh, or, you know, it's just morally wrong to to employ those tactics, even if you have some greater good in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I've talked about this so much with so many people at this point that I'm. I really think it's just become abundantly clear over the course of so many of these controversies that policing content is not the answer. You have to let writers write what they want to write. You've got to leave what's on the page alone. Um, and, you know, to, to improve diversity in publishing, you know, let more people through the door. Um, you know, let more and different types of writers in to tell more and different types of stories. And while you're at it, you know, maybe diversify who's actually working in-house, um, although to do that, you'd have to pay them a living wage, so good luck with that publishing. But... Um, the idea that, that we're going to solve this by policing what fictional characters are doing and saying within a work, I think, is just incredibly wrongheaded, and it's clearly not the right way to go about things. Do you think that she'll write any more articles on this topic, or are you kind of burned out on it? Uh, I never say never, um, although at this point, I feel like it's just the kind of the same thing happening over and over again. Um, and so if something happens to kind of escalate, then I would definitely be interested in covering it. But I also really hope that that doesn't happen. Like, I don't want things to get any worse on this front than they already are. Right. Yeah. All right. So I think that we're pretty much out of time. And I think we uh, we covered all this stuff I wanted to talk about. So um, do you have any just had any final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Uh, no, you know, just want to reiterate that A Trick of Light is available um, as an Audible original and also in print from Houghton Myth and Harcourt. And uh, would love for you to pick it up or read it or listen to it or do both. You know, why not? Are you not working on a sequel to Trick of Light? There is a sequel. Yeah, we uh, we actually just had a creative meeting about it that I I should shut up about. It. I don't even know why I'm talking <laughs> about this. <laughs> shut up, cat. Um so, but yes, there is going to be a second book. Um, there's also going to be uh, possibly a second Audible project that is different from the second book. Um, but like I said, I should really shut up about this. The, the universe will continue to expand. All right. Yeah, well, definitely looking forward to that. And so we've been speaking with Kat Rosenfield about her new book, A Trick of Light. So Kat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Kat Rosenfield for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to James Gunther, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. 
Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.